In 175 BC, Antiochus IV Epiphanes ascended to the Syrian throne, invaded Egypt, and desecrated Jerusalem. In an attempt to assimilate the Judean people, Antiochus forced them to worship Greek gods and outlawed Judaism, banning all Jewish rituals upon threat of death. History is strange, it's alien, and it won't give us what we would like to have. Every year on the 25th of Kislev, which varies from year to year because the Jewish calendar is a 28-day calendar, and of course the Julian calendar is not. So the 25th of Kislev can vary anywhere from second, two-thirds of the way through November to all the way through December, just about. It kind of varies, it comes and goes. But every year on the first night of Hanukkah, my son, Ben, has learned to light the candles. It's one of those things that I have just enjoyed, some of those photographs of him lighting the candles when he was very young. We were sitting at the table in California and right down to today. And now, these days, uh, the grandkids join us. And we enjoy the moment lighting those candles. We enjoy the moment of retelling that story once again. It is it's an important story. And it's a story that I don't mind repeating because every year it seems like it has more and more lessons for us. Our story begins in 334 BCE when Alexander the Great took his army across the Hellespont and began his campaign against Darius and the Persians and essentially conquered the Eastern world. As it's so often said, when, when he saw there were no more worlds to conquer, he wept. I think that's probably apocryphal, but because he never even bothered with the Western world, the Western Roman world. but. Like so many rulers throughout history, Alexander made exactly the same mistake that they made, which was he had no plan for what would happen if he died or if something happened to him to incapacitate him. And so when he died, his empire ended up being divided into essentially four kingdoms. There's a few smaller ones, but the, the, the main four ones, uh, and we could spend an entire career talking about Alexander and his his kingdoms that came after him. But these were kingdoms that were based in the Greek ideals, the Greek thinking. They were in Macedonia, Pergamon. But the two that really mattered uh, were the Ptolemaic kingdom, which was set up in Egypt. That's right, Egypt, after Alexander, in the 330s BCE, was Greek. It was no longer Egyptian in the strictest sense of the word. The pharaohs, all the way down to Cleopatra, the last pharaoh, were Greek. And so they spoke Greek, and they did things Greek. They worshipped Greek gods. Um, they did things 
in a Greek way. Cleopatra was unique in the sense that she adapted a lot of uh, adopted a lot of Egyptian culture, but she was Greek, and it was this Ptolemaic kingdom ruling out of Egypt that actually ruled uh, Judea and was very open to things. The the Ptolemaic kingdom was where um, the library at Alexandria, those kind of things were really important and knowledge was sought after and religious tolerance was actually a thing. The Ptolemies were very open to allowing other religions, particularly Judaism, to flourish in Judea. Moreover, the Ptolemaic kings were the ones who were responsible for what is known as the Septuagint. They invited 70 Jewish scholars to come to Alexandria, where they translated the the Tanakh, the Torah, the writings, the prophets, and the... uh, It's gone, sorry. (laughs) Right? The the writings, the the Torah, the writings, and the the, uh, prophets into Greek, which became the Septuagint, which is the basis for the translation that you know as the King James Version Bible today. That's where it came from. The Ptolemies are the ones that uh, pushed that. To the north, however, in Syria, is ruled by a group known as the Seleucids. Now, Seleucids are much more pushy than the Ptolemies are. They are not very... uh, open to anything other than Hellenistic culture and worship. They are very much about the ideas that you will worship the way we tell you to worship, you will do things the way we tell you to do them, and if you don't, there will be hell to pay. And it's this particular group that becomes very aggressive in this time period. Around 174 BCE, there is a change of leadership in the Seleucid kingdom. The the king dies. His so-called rightful heir is, well, it's not completely clear from the records what happens to him, but it is obvious that the person who wants to be the king in the Seleucid Empire decides that he's going to take whatever means are necessary to make sure that he becomes the king of the Seleucid Empire. This guy's name is Antiochus, and he will become known as Antiochus IV because he's the fourth Antiochus to rule the Seleucid Kingdom. Antiochus IV is one of those characters in history who is... Boy... You know, you play that game as a historian. Who would you like to sit, you know, the five people you want to sit down at dinner with? There are times when I would, when I think to myself, I would like to talk to him because something in Antiochus IV is really off. Antiochus gives himself the name Epiphanes. Antiochus Epiphanes, you've probably heard that name. He is the, Epiphanes basically means I am God. I mean, that's essentially... God is is made manifest through me. And, of course, by that he means Zeus is made manifest through me. I am Zeus. I speak for Zeus. I was talking the other day about cults and 
you know, Antiochus Epiphanes is one of those cultish leaders that it would be interesting to talk to. And he is very, very Hellenistic, perhaps even more so than his predecessors. His predecessors had been pretty hardcore about it. But when Antiochus comes along, he decides that he is not going to have any of this Jewish religion. And the problem that he has, however, is he only has a portion of it. The other problem that he has is the Ptolemies. He doesn't like them. And so he goes to war against the Ptolemaic kingdom. And, of course, he is successful enough in that that he manages to take over Judea. Now he has all of the Jews. And he has decided that, again, we're going to Hellenize everything we take. Part of the problem with his invasion of Egypt, however, is that the Romans are not having that. And the Romans uh, have made it clear that they're not going to put up with that. That's unrelated to what we're doing. But as a consequence of his victory, Antiochus now controls all of Judea, all of the Jews. And he goes beyond the norm of the of the uh, Seleucids, and he doesn't just push for what is known as assimilation, that is the, the goal that he has, he demands it. And he will have assimilation no matter what. He will get assimilation from the Jews and others as well, but he is absolutely determined to get it in Judea, and he is willing to put people to death if he doesn't get what he wants. And this is really the starting point of the holiday that we will celebrate starting the 25th of Kislev this year, December 7th, because of the differences in the calendar. You know it is Hanukkah. And that's our story today on Dave Does History. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back. It's Dave Does History. No Bill Mick this week. He's uh, in West by God, Virginia, as you know, enjoying himself. He was pretty happy the other day because West Virginia beat Cincinnati, so I'm sure you'll be hearing more about that in the future. We will be back live uh, next week when we get uh, when he gets back from vacation. Of course, then we just got a couple weeks before Christmas kicks in, so we'll see how that goes. When we left you, Antiochus IV, Antiochus Epiphanes, had decided that he was going to assimilate the Jewish people in Judea that he had recently captured from the Ptolemaic kingdom. And this assimilation is important to understand. This is the idea that people can be absorbed and or eradicated. Now, Antiochus's position was you will assimilate or you will be killed. So it's literally the same thing. There have been attempts at assimilation before for the Jews, and we've seen this uh, in the past with with Nebuchadnezzar. We've seen it with Sennacherib. We've seen it with uh, Darius. We, we all of which, for for reasons other reasons, end up not happening. This time, however, Antiochus Epiphanes makes it clear: you will assimilate, or you will die. Period. 
he uses uh, some methods that are kind of shocking to people when they read them nowadays. Um, he bans Jewish practice, the faith of Judaism. He says there are no more Jewish faith practices, period. This means that the Jews cannot read the Torah, which is, of course, to us, it, Torah is life. One of the metaphors for Torah is tree of life. It is, it's, it's, it's what brings us closer to God. And, of course, we have a different definition of Torah than that which has been assigned by, by Christianity. But be that as it may, we're told that we can't read, study, listen to Torah. One of the other things he does is that he bans the practice of circumcision. I'm not going to sit here and talk about circumcision too much, but this is a, a covenant, a mark of the covenant between God and his people. There's a lot of a lot more depth to circumcision than I think it gets uh, talked about, certainly um, in, in modern media. However, you need to understand that to us, this is a very personal thing, and it is a very, it's a reminder of that covenant between ourselves and God, not just corporately as a nation but or as a people, but individual. The mark of circumcision is something that reminds us, when we need to be reminded, of our obligation to keep Torah. He bans that practice. There will be no more circumcisions in Judea. It's not allowed. And consequently, anyone who does circumcise their child will be put to death. Does this sound familiar to anybody? Does this sound a little bit like, uh, what was that other guy? Oh yeah, Pharaoh tried this. Remember back with before the Exodus. He further bans the celebrations that Jews have, the, the festivals that we have. Uh, you know, of course, by this point, we would have had uh, Yom Kippur, we would have uh, the uh, Rosh Hashanah, we would have had the booths, Sukkot, we would have had Passover. All of these festivals are banned. You can't do them. You can't keep these obligations. Three of those festivals require Jewish men to go to Jerusalem, to the temple, to make sacrifices. And he bans that. You can't do that. He also bans Shabbat. So there's no way to spend your, your, your Shabbat in keeping those those covenants with God. He, he doesn't allow that. He forces Hellenistic religion and customs. Now, this is important to understand. Uh, this is something, when it comes to Hellenization of Judea, this is something that is missed, I think, sometimes when people, even today, go to the Holy Land and they visit and they see these old Greek ruins, these old Greco-Roman ruins. They don't really understand what impact that had. One of the things that the Greeks have is the gymnasium. Now, we have a connotation today of the word gymnasium, and I go to the gym over here, I go to the YMCA, they have an indoor track, they have ellipticals, they have all this kind of stuff. That's not quite what we're talking about here. A gymnasium in that time was a place where people went to exercise, yes, but that exercise was generally and it was always male, but it was, generally speaking, wrestling. 
and it was always in the nude. Which, again, I don't want to be titillating here, and I don't want to go too far, because this is, you know, radio, and we don't want to... But I need you to read between the lines. And that wrestling, that nude wrestling in the gymnasium, often led to behaviors that Jews find and found antithetical to what we believe. And so, but Greeks found perfectly normal. Okay? Not judging, I'm just saying. This was being forced into Jerusalem, as well as into other places in in Israel, Judea. Uh, The gymnasium came with that. Along with that came Greek worship. You will worship the Greek gods. Now, other nations had the same thing. The Greeks would require you in Greece in the early days of their republic to worship their gods, but as long as you did so, uh, you were okay. The Romans had a similar policy, as did the Ptolemies. But when, when he found that he was being resisted in all of this, Antiochus Epiphanes went further. He went further than anyone else had ever done, and he did something that even to this day resonates as pure evil. Antiochus Epiphanes sacrificed a pig, an unclean animal, on the altar in the temple in Jerusalem. He then took the blood of the pig and spread it around the inside of the temple and destroyed the sanctity, attacked the sanctity of that holy of holies by spreading that blood there of that swine. He then had an altar, some describe it as a statue, of Zeus, the Greek god Zeus, set up in the Holy of Holies. Now imagine, if you will, this is the place where the Ark of the Covenant once rested, where the spirit, the Shekinah glory of God, rested. And the presumption was that someday he would again. Now there's a statue of Zeus, or an altar at least, to Zeus, in that Holy of Holies, along with pig's buds smeared on the walls. It was a total desecration of the temple in Jerusalem. This was, you know, this was hard to take. He followed this up with with violence and persecution. When he found mothers who had circumcised their children anyway, he would crucify them. Romans didn't invent crucifixion, by the way. He would crucify them, and he would take the child, and we're told this by the historians of that era, and he would hang the children from the mother's necks as they were being crucified. He would hold public executions and torture. He would uh, have economic and social restrictions on Jews so that they would begin to see or begin to think his, his, his plan was they would begin to think, well, you know what? It's just easier just to go along to get along. And indeed, there were a lot of folks in Judea who did. There were many folks who saw this as the final excuse to become both Hellenistic, worldly, to leave the worship of Hashem behind. And they did. Many of those were in the northern portion of the country. You know them biblically as Samaritans. Now they had been assimilated before by Sennacherib and later by Nebuchadnezzar, but this really finalized the job uh, for that. You 
You've probably heard the myth of the ten lost tribes of Israel. There are no ten lost tribes. They're right where they always were. They just got assimilated and chose to abandon the worship of God to go along to get along. And it's in this period that they become known as the Samaritans. And they are, they have this mindset of being defend, dependent, being Jewish, but assimilated Jews. The result of all this, of course, is conflict. There is a revolt and a war. It's led by the Maccabees, which is our family of priests who refuse to bow down to Antiochus, who refuse to carry out his directives. And the Maccabees lead this revolt, they lead this war of rebellion, they lead this war of resistance to this assimilation by the Greek king Antiochus, who of course is becoming more and more just off his rocker as time goes by. He's becoming more and more convinced that he's God. And he gets angrier and angrier at the fact that the Jews are disobeying him. There's a lot of um, a lot of parallels between Antiochus Epiphanes and Caligula later on. This war goes on for three years. Three years of fighting, three years of destruction. By all accounts, it is a terrible, terrible war. By all accounts that we have, it is destructive, it is deadly, and yet at the same time, it is successful. And after three years of fighting, the Maccabees lead the nation back into Jerusalem to recapture the, the Temple Mount, to recapture the Temple there in Jerusalem, and they've won the war. The problem is the temple is an absolute wreck. There's a statue of Zeus. There's pig's blood everywhere. And now we have to now we have to take action. Because even though we've won the war, we still have to restore what was lost. So we come to the 27th of Kislev in the year 3597, or in the common calendar of today, the 21st of November today, in the year 164 BCE. 
the Maccabees, the Jews, clean up the temple, have cleaned up the temple. They've scrubbed everything down. They've gotten rid of all the desecration. And they are ready to rededicate the temple. And part of the rededication process is we have to relight the menorah. The menorah has seven branches. It's the candlesticks described in uh, the Torah. The problem is they don't have enough consecrated oil. You probably know this part of the story. You have to have oil that has been specially consecrated. This oil comes from Jericho, which is where the priests and Levites live. That's their their domain. And somebody has to go. They have to get it. They have to make it. They have to consecrate it. They have to do all those kinds of things. Then they got to get it back to Jerusalem. It's going to take a week, at least, to get this oil. And they don't have enough. They have enough for one night of lighting the menorah. And the decision is made that we have worked so hard to get where we are, we're dedicating this temple, rededicating it to the service of Hashem, God. And so they light the candles. And the miracle of Hanukkah is that the candles, the lights, the menorah, burns for eight nights. That little bit of oil lasts for eight nights. And of course, this becomes the symbolism of Hanukkah, which began this day, 25 Kislev, 164 BCE, 21 November, by our dating. The reminder of that miracle happens every year when we light those candles. It not only reminds us of that miracle, God did a great miracle there, that's what we what the letters on the dreidel stand for. But it reminds us of other things as well. It reminds us of spiritual enlightenment and wisdom. Light is a symbol of God's presence in the world. It is a reminder of resilience that we find our way to survive in the face of evil. Antiochus tried to eradicate and assimilate Jews didn't work. We got Hanukkah. There were attempts at assimilation during the Roman Empire. Although the Roman Empire was much more tolerant, they still insisted on using their language, customs. They did allow for a degree of religious and cultural autonomy, but one of the things they did was peer pressure. Okay, you can worship Yahweh, Hashem, but can't you just, you know, on the side do a sacrifice to Zeus or Poseidon too? And if you don't, they kind of said, well, it must be that guy's fault because he didn't do it. So while there was some tolerance, there was still an attempt. The Spanish Inquisition later on, um, the forced assimilation of the Spanish Jews, the 1492 Alhambra Decree that we've talked about, the expulsion of the Jews, the stealing of, of Jewish money to use uh, for the Spanish in their conquests of the New World. They forced Christianity. Um, and even some Jews converted willingly or under distress, but sometimes they they continued to practice Judaism in secret. It wasn't a real conversion, as it will. Later, you would have the Russian Empire and the Pale, the, uh, the, the shtetl, the early 1800s to the early 20th century. And, and 
the, the Russians were really trying to assimilate Jews. And you've seen this and the fiddler on the roof and how they were trying to get rid of them. If you don't want to assimilate them, leave, so forth and so on. They encouraged Russification, the adoption of Russian language and culture. Even Jews ourselves, we managed to try to kind of assimilate ourselves. There was a movement called the Jewish Enlightenment Movement in the 18th, 19th centuries that was a movement amongst European Jews to adopt uh, European society and culture, secular education, adoption of local languages, uh, engagement with non-Jewish communities. It was kind of an internal attempt at assimilation. And what would have come of that? Of course, the most evil of all of them, Nazi Germany, although I'm not convinced that Nazi Germany was necessarily, because Antiochus was just as evil, and others were as well, but we saw under Nazi rule the attempt to not just assimilate Jews, but steal the business, Aryanization of the businesses, imposition of restrictions, and that escalated into systematic persecution and genocide making it distinct from the other assimilation attempts because it turned into one of the darkest chapters of human history. But even in those moments, Hanukkah was still there. The lights were still there. The most, one of the most beautiful photographs ever taken by a rabbi's wife of the Hanukkah menorah sitting in the window in front of the Nazi flag, reminding that we're not giving up. We're not, we're not going to do that. There was an attempt by the French at assimilation in the 19th and 20th centuries. French uh, Jews, they granted Jews full citizenship after the French Revolution, but they encouraged us to assimilate into French society. It was voluntary. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't forced like it was tried to be with the Nazis and others. But even that subtle attempt is, is an attempt at forced assimilation. Then you have the American melting pot. I'm an American. I love America. I love the fact that we're a melting pot. But again, is that a voluntarily voluntary form of assimilation? Or does it keep us there? There are other lessons that we take from Hanukkah. One of which is very important, I think, and that is that it is a declaration of faith. There is a rule that the menorahs must be visible from the street. There must be a menorah in the window. Think about that. Go back to that rabbi's picture. It has to be visible in the window. That's the rule. Why? Because it's a declaration of our faith. Even in the face of danger, even in the face of harassment, even in the face of assimilation, the menorah must still be visible from the street because it declares our faith. It's a reminder of our community and our families and the continuity and the face of assimilation that we've managed to keep that faith intact. One of the things that's most moving to me about the Hanukkah menorah, of course, the Hanukkah menorah has eight branches. One of, and it actually has nine. Eight for the days that the, 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 the oil burned. And then there's a, a ninth candle. That candle is called the Shamash, and it is literally translates to servant candle. And yet, it's also higher than the others. It's a leadership candle. It's a candle that is used to light the other candles as the days go by, 
but it's a, it's an example of service to others and leadership by example. The Shamash reminds us of that each and every year. As we light the candles this year, and we will start, as I said, on December 7th, we are facing yet another attempt at assimilation, aren't we? The news, every day I turn it on, is full of reminders that, once again, light is in danger of being extinguished. You don't have to turn on the TV for very long to see those who want assimilation and eradication. Once again, by lighting these candles, these menorahs, Starting on the 25th of Kislev, which in 164 BCE was today, the 21st of November. We declare our faith and we declare our resistance to that assimilation. We declare that we are a community and a family bound by a faith. And we are reminded once again that our purpose is service to others and leadership by example. And in the face of of yet another attempt at assimilating us against our will, we will light the menorahs. We will once again show that light is stronger than darkness. And it all started this day, November 21st, 164 BCE, in Jerusalem.